Welcome to Making Waves, a show about sound art, produced by New Ventures in Sound Art. You're listening to a recording of the Organ Pipe Cactus National Monument. It's located near the Arizona-Mexican border. This recording uh, was made by Garth Payne. It's part of the Listen to the Power of N project from Arizona State University. And uh, Garth Payne uh, spearheads that project. He's a composer and interactive media artist uh, uh, originally from Australia, but now based at Arizona State. And uh, when he first came to Arizona, and became fascinated with the soundscapes of the deserts and the national monuments in the American Southwest. And uh, Listen to the Power of N is uh, a project to explore those the soundscapes from those uh, places. And uh, in doing this, he's gathered interest and assistance from both residents living close to the National Monument Parks, as well as uh, from the students and professional colleagues at the university and uh, elsewhere around the world. One of the many uh, outcomes of the research that um, Listen to the Power of N has undertaken is a virtual reality sound installation, which allows listeners to experience these unique soundscapes in a surprisingly lifelike way, with a simple combination of a 360-degree photograph and an amazonic sound recording. New Ventures in Sound Art is uh, hosting uh, their VR work as part of its uh, Listen In exhibition in South River, Canada. Last uh, month, we listened to an interview with Udo Noll, whose uh, project uh, Radio Apparee is also part of that same exhibit. And uh, of course, uh, with that, I had the opportunity to uh, speak with Garth Payne uh, about Listen to the Power N project and to learn about uh, a number of topics related to their soundscape research. And uh, among those is the special insight into climate change that regular soundscape recording and monitoring can actually offer. Here's my conversation with Garth Payne. What brought you to Arizona from, from Australia and, uh, and then this focus on the, the soundscape, which I su suspect, although it was not uh, absent from your work or anything, but this seems to be a more intensified focus since you've been there. So I was invited to be a visiting professor here at Arizona State University in, I don't know, about 2007, I think. At that time, I was doing a lot of acoustic ecology work or a lot of field recording, a lot of composition with found sound. 
Um, but I was also doing a lot of interactive performance work, and that was really why I was asked to come here. And one of the things that I discovered here during that time was that the energy of the land here is remarkably similar to that of Australia. And by that I mean it's really untamed. Like there's a wild energy that comes out of the ground and it's really strong and you don't have to go very far to to be in that you know like I can drive half an hour in pretty much any direction and be out in um, out of the suburbs and in into you know natural environments and so I really found that really interesting because I've also lived in Europe a few times and I've had to leave Europe because I don't get that sense of the wildness of the energy coming out of the land. I get the sense that everybody's trodden on that land for thousands of years and it's all kind of, you know, calm and contained and, and you know, mellowed. And so I love that kind of dynamic richness that's in that wild energy that's here. And so the first thing I did actually was to hire a car and head up to the Grand Canyon, of course. And... Um, and then on the way, I noticed that the different kinds of species of cactus change with altitude. And that was really fascinating to me because, of course, I've never lived in a place where there was, you know, natural species was cactus. And I never thought about the fact that there'd be different species that change with altitude. And, and so I just started thinking, wait, I want to stop like every, you know, 20 miles or something. I'm going to just drive off the road and sit there and listen for 10 or 20 or 30 minutes or something. And so then I also really noticed the change in the soundscape and the species and, uh, you know, as of course, when you think about it, of course, that's true. And it really fascinated me that when I came back down into the hot desert, because Phoenix is in what's called the Valley of the Sun. And, it, you know, if you drive outside of the city, well, even in the city, it's desert. It's a kind of gravel desert. And often people go out there and they say, oh, it's just like empty, you know, barren wasteland. And certainly the US military like to argue that so they can use it for testing all kinds of horrendous things. Um, but when you go and sit in those environments, they are very quiet and then you start to tune into small the small sounds that you start to realize are actually going on all around you and the scale of the animals and the kind of delicacy of that soundscape really captured me and so that was like during my first visit and then uh, later on in 2010 i was asked whether i'd come back for a whole year uh, which i did and so at that point, I, I arrived in, I guess it was July, um, maybe early August, and it was insanely hot here, like, you know, 140 degrees Fahrenheit, 45, 47 degrees out. And I had to get a, a kind of share car and drive out to make recordings. So I didn't get out into the desert till, you know, midday or something. And... Um, and of course, there's nobody else out and about in the middle of July at midday. And um, and I set up to record um, and then, you know, realized I couldn't just sit there because I actually like to lie on the ground when I'm recording um, and just listen. And I couldn't stay with the gear because it was just way too hot. And again, it really struck me that it was really quiet because pretty much everything else that had any sense had gone underground and was, you know, out of the sun. 
And then there were things like dragonflies with really dry, crackly wings that flew past and different kind of bugs. And, and yeah, so I just found the, that kind of relationship between the fidelity of the sound of the place and the kind of dynamic energy, richness of the rawness of that energy, um, really fascinating and, and kind of correlated to experiences that I'd had in Australia also. And, um, and then they asked me if I would stay at the end of that year. And so I said, yes, that would be fabulous. <laughs> so what were some of the differences between the soundscape there and the, and the drier places of Australia? Was it uh, radically different, very similar, different species? Yeah, certainly in Australia, the bird species, of course, are all completely different. And if you visited Australia, you'll know that the birds generally are quite raucous in Australia. Um, so people who've not experienced galahs and rosellas and, and parrots of various kinds and so on, cockatoos, um, are kind of shocked by how raucous they are. <laughs> um, but in the And so you get a lot of those birds even in the desert, um, small um, parrots called budgerigars, um, but yeah, a lot of parrots and so on. So most of my field recording has been in wetter environments like in in new south wales or in tasmania and not so much of it in the deserts in australia but when i have been out there i think it's the same experience which is that you know if you just drive through and you stop for like three minutes you're like oh there's nothing here it's just like empty and if you actually just stop and sit down for at least half an hour then you know your active listening kicks in and you start to realize, yeah, that actually there are little bugs and all kinds of tiny things all around you in the various plants that are around you. I think I think that soundscape might be more active here in, in Arizona in that I think a lot of those insects make more noise, like they have a kind of drier, crackly wing than in Australia. And, you know, from my experience, of course, it depends on habitat. But my experience in Australia is a lot more of the insects would be walking along the sand because the desert is sandy there. And here a lot more of them are, are flying. And so you get a lot of those kinds of really great crackly kinds of sounds.
So you had this threshold shift, I guess, and attention shift when you came to the desert. And then I guess through your activity with the university, the, the, the Listen project uh, began. So how did that occur? And, and it seems to have a, a, a advocacy element to it. Um, so was it a case that this spare landscape really uh, needed a, a extra effort of drawing attention to the sounds than, than maybe uh, what might have been uh, more immediate and automatic back in Australia? I guess in moving, I really wanted to explore and understand where I was. And so I I was doing probably a lot more field recording more regularly, whereas in Australia, I would do it in focused periods associated with projects and and so on. And here I just started doing it, you know, like every weekend I'd be like, well, I'm going to go somewhere new and, and do some recording for a few hours and so on. So that was happening. And we're actually surrounded by national parks and what are called national monuments that are, are kind of a step below, but are still managed by the park service. And it also interested me that we actually have quite a few UNESCO biosphere reserves. In fact, all of the parks are UNESCO biosphere reserves. Um, but due to the kind of unique politics of the US with the UN, um, they don't talk about that very much. And so I then decided to really start looking at the UN Biosphere Reserves and found they were all exactly overlaid with the national parks and national monuments. And that's because it opens up a whole international research option for all of those professionals. And as I was doing that, I've been, you know, I guess increasingly concerned about climate change and, and climate impact. And I was talking with people in those local environments about that and also with the park services about the challenges of looking after the parks. And the National Park Service have a what's called a Dark Skies program and also a Natural Soundscapes program. So part of their mission is actually to maintain and preserve both the sky and the sound and everything else about those environments. So they're conscious that sound is an important part of that environment, although they, they have you know, minimal resources to to put to that. Um, So they were extremely supportive about my recordings and and I've shared those with those parks and and we continue to do that. And so I started realising that a lot of people who live near those national parks are often not particularly well off and they're often working possibly more than one job to survive they often can't really afford the entrance fee to the national park but they're also conscious of environmental impact and they really want to do something about climate change but they they feel they can't you know and and they would say to me look if i was living in a big city um you know i'd be out there protesting and so on but nobody wants to protest in aho which is you know outside organ pipe cactus national monument or in joshua tree for instance right they're like what's the point of doing that And so I started to think about longer term analysis of sound recordings in terms of looking at climate impact as something that we would hear in those recordings. And so I started running listening workshops in those places that I was recording regularly and then actually training people to make recordings there on a monthly basis. And around that time, the the Brahma 
um, Ambisonic A format in Zoom recorder was came up on um, Kickstarter, and so um, had a chat with them, and and we bought like about ten of them, um, so that we could actually train people and give those to volunteers. Um, and so that really started this what's listen to the power of N, which is like listening in many places idea, which was really about monthly documentation of the acoustic ecology of, of locations across the southwest of the US. And so that project is still going. <laughs> we're still we're still out there on a regular basis and people still recording for us, which is fantastic. And through that process, people feel that they've built a degree of agency in helping document what's going on. And so they also have some level of stewardship about that environment that they're involved in recording and sharing. And then around that same time, Oculus had the Kickstarter for the Oculus Rift. And I immediately thought, wait, that's like, that could be brilliant if we could actually take people to those environments who are in the city, kids, you know, all kinds of things, and actually share the value of being in these places and share the value of just listening in these places with people who can't go there because actually when you think about it, it's quite an elitist thing. You need to have a decent car and camping gear and money to get into the park and, you know, so on and so forth. And so I started thinking about whether VR might be an approach to kind of democratizing access to these places because it seemed to me that if we could substantially broaden appreciation in the cities, then there would be, again, more agency to stand up for protecting these environments. And in the current US climate, that's obviously a really big challenge. As that recording process has continued, we now have um, about five years of continuous data for Joshua Tree National Park and Organ Pipe Cactus National Park particularly. And so last year we started a project with some computer scientists doing psychoacoustic analysis of those recordings five times a second and linking that to weather data and building a model that shows the correlation between psychoacoustic parameters in those environments and changes in weather. And so we've started to develop that as a predictive tool with the idea that from a say a year's worth of recordings in a location, one might start to be able to predict climate impacts on that environment just from those recordings. And so, you know, as you will well know, it's really coming back to this idea that within the sound of any ecosystem is an incredibly rich amount of data that we generally overlook. And or we look at very specific things, we count birds or, you know, we look for very specific calls and we're not really, there aren't really a lot of tools out there to look at the kind of overall condition of that environment. And then there really aren't tools out there that I'm aware of anyway at this point to look at how that changes over time. So we're kind of building community and trying to do scientific work at the same time and trying to put all of those things together as a kind of public access approach to looking at the value of these pristine environments. It's interesting that trying to quantify, I guess, the interaction of elements of animals with weather changes um, through sound. It all plays out in the soundscape because they all, all those things on, in some shape or form make sound. So it's interesting to, you know, coming 
from maybe a musical perspective on it is is how these things interrelate and and feed off each other and uh as opposed to the, the typical scientific research is to isolate one thing was that always there and it just was like there wasn't the tools and well we got to make the tools or was there or was there a different impetus for it yes yeah, so i guess as you touch on i'm also i'm a musician <laughs> and um you know as a musician you're listening to you're listening to everything at the same time, right? I mean, you're trying. I was trained, you know, as a classical flute player and played in orchestras originally. Um, and of course, you have to listen to everybody, and you have to be part of that ensemble. And so that idea, and then you know, became a recording engineer and so on. And so all the mixing and all those things are about really hearing an ecosystem and balancing that ecosystem. And so going out into nature was nothing different for me. And in the listening workshops that I teach, I like to teach people passive listening, directed listening and active listening. And of course, when you talk about passive listening, people are like, oh, you just have to listen to the whole soundscape at once and just listen to it. And they think, oh, that's very easy. And then we go to try to do it. And it's like, oh, it's not very easy at all because actually our whole being is listening for threats and dangers and change and you know we're set up to listen for change so how do we actually hear that thing as a contiguous space and then of course you know I go out a lot so if it's winter as you know very well the air is cold the sound has a different fidelity um, but also the say the snow is very absorptive and so you become really aware of how the sound quality changes with season and with different kinds of foliage and you know, if you're in a canyon, you have all that reverberation and so on. Um, and so I've been really, for me, that is the acoustic ecology. So when we use the term, which I think is a fab fabulous term, that really is the acoustic properties of the ecology that you're standing in. Um, and so I just always understood inherently that these things were all interlinked and inseparable, in fact. Um, and I've also done a lot of work um, particularly in Australia, but a little bit here in Arizona with Indigenous people. And, you know, the one thing that they will continuously drive home is that everything is interlinked. Everything is interdependent, codependent. You know, you cannot just do this and it doesn't affect something else. It's, it's not possible. And so it just seemed blindingly obvious to me that as climate impact continues, the properties of that acoustic environment will change now that might change because species depart but it could change for instance in joshua tree there's some virus that's attacking joshua tree plants and joshua tree national park has a lot of very large rock boulders it's like incredible rock formations and the joshua trees are like a cactus tree and so they're the biggest absorptive material in that landscape and so it struck me some years ago that if they were to die out, the reverberation time of those environments would increase considerably. And then I started to think, you know, species could leave here because they can't hear each other, because intelligibility drops away, because if you're a predator, you can't hear the prey properly and localise. If you're just trying to talk to your mate, in breeding season, you can't work out what's going on in the same way that if we're in a cathedral, we, we want to go outside to have a discussion, really. 
And I started to think, well, you know, the changes in acoustic properties of these environments could actually drive species to move or to not mate or whatever, even though there may be food there and there could be shelter there and all the other things that we would say drive those things, the, the change in acoustic properties could do that. So then when you look around um, this extraordinary research in industrial design and so on, looking at psychoacoustics, so I went and talked to B&K about their psychoacoustic work and they basically said, oh, we don't, we've never thought about that in terms of natural environments. And I looked around for what other tools are there and the tools that are there are, in my view, kind of blunt tools, a bit like, you know, a hammer um, on a pin type project. And that is that, in my view, sound pressure level is useful for some things, but not much. It's really the perceptual quality of the soundscape that is critical both to our experience and I would postulate to that of animals as well. And so I started to think, well, we should really look much more deeply at the psychoacoustic properties of these environments. And then now that we're building a long, you know, a data set that's several years of material, we should start to look at how those correlate with weather conditions. And and it's true, like, I think it was um, not last summer, the summer before I got the first plots out of the model and the 24-hour plots for, like, a three-week future date um, for which we have data, so testing the model, and then its correlation to the actual data for that day were remarkably close. And I just, it I was kind of dumbstruck for an hour or so thinking... Yeah, this could actually become a tool to predict climate impact just from the sound of the environment. And that shows you the depth of information that's in that acoustic ecology that we're just overlooking most of the time. So, I mean, that's only from a, how many years of recordings is that data drawing from? Actually, that data in the model so far is only about six months of data um, because it's very time consuming to process and we're kind of working on ways to speed that up considerably. Um, so, yeah, that was only from six months. And, and at this point, I don't know how much data we would need for the model to be really um, reliable. Um, and it would depend on how extreme the seasons were and all kinds of things, I would think. Yeah, after six months of data, we were already getting very strong correlation in predictions in the model. So I, I'm kind of hoping that we get to a point where maybe a year of, of sampling, and this is only monthly sampling anyway, of the of the soundscape of, of an environment will help will assist us build a model that could predict, you know, 10 years into the future in terms of the climate impact that would be happening there. What I don't understand is how it would predict if it only has a small amount of data. Yeah, so that's what we're still working on. I mean, the the model that gets built doesn't have a time reference, so it doesn't know, oh, this is February and this is March or whatever. It's simply looking at the correlations between the weather data and the sound, the, the psychoacoustic properties and what are called MEL frequency sepstral coefficients. Um which are kind of like the intelligibility index, if you like. Well, the question is, how little data can you feed the model before the model is reliable? And then how far into the future does that still work? So it could predict, it could predict the next day, no problem, but a year later at the same time might be more. Mm. 
Yeah, so the model's obviously looking for relationships and then you, you have to find out how generalizable are those relationships over time. Our current research seems to indicate that they're really very generalizable, in fact. So that's the $6 million question at the moment is, like, we're still feeding it data. And so the question is, does it get better? <laughs> like, um, and, you know, we only have five years worth of data. So if we fed it the first year and we predict four years into the future, then that's to data that we have now. And we run that data up against the prediction. How accurate is that? Um, currently, the, the predictions that we've been testing are shorter term, and they've been actually remarkably accurate for a 24-hour period. There might be some hours that don't quite correlate, but for the 24-hour period, they're remarkably accurate. So I don't know. It might all fall over, but at the moment, it looks like it's, it's proving the things that those of us know who go out and listen a lot, which is that there's very strong correlation between weather conditions and the quality of the sound that you hear. And I guess what it's equally showing is that we can map, actually, even over short term, six months of data, we can kind of start to map how that is actually already changing as a product of climate impact.
you mentioned uh, involving people from the areas uh, near the parks and getting them involved in the recording uh, process and the data collection process. What are some of their uh, observations about changes uh, to the soundscape uh, uh, from their personal experience? It's hard to generalize. <laughs> um, so, for instance, Joshua Tree National Park has been subject to, in the last couple of years, to incredible rains. Um, and you, I'm sure you've seen on the news big flooding, um, you know, terrible mudslides, and then this year big fires. And so the Californian weather patterns have gone completely berserk. I mean, really, like, they're exemplary in, in, in how dramatic they've suddenly become. Um, what's that that's meant is that the kind of re things that we're seeing in Joshua Tree are super unusual. So I've been recording at a place in Joshua Tree National Park called Barker Dam for many years before the Listen Project began. And uh, about two years ago, um, there was, you know, an extraordinary rainfall and the dam filled up. And that's the first time I've ever seen any water in it. And so over the months after that, suddenly frogs appeared and birds came and, you know, waterfowl came and um, nested there. And I mean, the whole ecosystem was transformed. And actually on the VR, um, the EcoRift VR, there's a there's a scene that I shot there late one night of, with all the frog sounds and a full moon and all the water in the dam and so on. So one of the things that people would report to me over the last couple of years is that the patterns that they're seeing are really not what they're used to and they're extreme i haven't had people telling me i don't see this bird anymore or uh, you know those kinds of really obvious things but they have been saying yeah these you know i have never seen this happening for instance and, and things like that but it is really useful to have eyes on the ground and it is useful that people say I've never seen this dam with this much water in it in my whole life. And I've been living here, whatever, for several decades. And it is really noticeable how people feel a real, develop a really strong stewardship around the place that they're recording because they do feel that they become documenters of that place and that becomes very special to them. Did you find that asking them to make sound recordings as opposed to video recordings, did that require some uh, persuasion uh, to make that happen? Or was that, or were they locked into that aspect already in terms of uh, listening and sound? So we actually run a series of workshops, the first one being a listening workshop in which I teach passive directed and active listening. And we teach those in the parks. And people often say to me, oh, my God, you just completely changed the world for me, you know, like, and, and it's kind of, and I always say to them, well, not really, you already did that. It's just now you essentially have a set of terms to define the skill. And now you can choose to, to use that skill and practice it and so on. So one of the options that we offer people at the end of those workshops is to become a, a citizen scientist with the Listen Project and to become part of a team that, you know, makes regular recordings. So that's how these people have come into the program. And then we run a recording workshop. So, you know, then we go back and run a separate uh, workshop over two days and recording. And then uh, once a year we go back and we run workshops on 
you know, making creative work, composing with the sounds that they've been recording. Um, and uh, we've done several concerts of surround sound work composed just using the sounds that are uh, recorded in those preserves. So it kind of ties all of that together from the listening to the recording to then that becoming a creative project. Um, you're right, of course, people f do generally find it quite difficult to sit and listen. And I would say we probably have a high percentage of meditators <laughs> in that set of volunteers um, who enjoy the the experience of sitting there and just listening for an uh, we we generally say it's a minimum of one hour and preferably considerably longer. And it also takes a lot of commitment. I mean, there's a lot of things in your life that stop you, <laughs> you know, wanting to go out. And Joshua Tree National Park is high desert. So in the winter, that can have snow on the ground. And um, that can be, you know, I've sat out there in the early morning when it's been 19 degrees Fahrenheit. And that's that's cold just to be sitting still for a couple of hours. So, yeah, it takes a lot of dedication. I mean, people really have to commit themselves. Training has been more about of course, how to make the recordings, but then about being still and being quiet and just listening. And, you know, that if you really have to fidget, then you should set the recorder up and then go some distance from it um, so that you can move your legs if you have to and not disturb the recording. <laughs> Has there been any um, discussion of having a permanent recorder uh, or recording equipment uh, running on a continuous basis in any of the locations? Uh, not in the national parks, and that's because that's, like, really difficult to do in the national parks. They're very concerned about having ad hoc infrastructure in the park. Um, they're very concerned about animals eating it, getting sick, etc., etc. Um, so that's a really big, that's a big project to put stuff more permanently um, we do have a project with the McDowell Sonoran Preserve um, here in Scottsdale, which is the largest um, urban fringe preserve in the Northern Hemisphere. It's a very large area just north of Scottsdale here. Um, and we have 14 recorders there that run continuously. Um, now, saying that, they're, they're based on little microprocessors um, and they, they record um, for about four or five days at a time. And then the cards and the batteries are refreshed every two weeks by a whole team of volunteers. Um, so that's been, this is the second year that, that, that we've been recording there. Um, and that's as close as we've got to like continuous data collection at this point. Yeah. <laughs> of course, then you come up with just astronomical amounts of data. I mean, you know. Well, but I think for what you're doing, though, that would be necessary, though. Yeah. Absolutely. Yes, indeed. Yeah, it really is. And and you do start to notice really interesting things when you have like continuous, relatively continuous data. Um, because, for instance, we have some funding to look at um, aircraft activity in that McDowell Sonoran Preserve data this year. And looking at the numbers of aircraft, um, you know, analyzing that in all of these recordings. But then you also start to see other patterns to do with other human use and so on. Um, yeah, I mean, it's just such a rich area. I feel like we're really only just starting to scratch the surface and and we really need to develop automated tools that can really do good tagging of 
not just species, but events that can really start to do psychoacoustic analysis in a large, large batch process, you know, terabytes of recordings at a time, um, and really start to think about the, the big data side of what it means to have large amounts of recordings from, a, from the field and what data is in there and how do we get at that? Hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's, I guess it's nice to have the resources of the university involved so that that big data can be collected someplace. At least, and, and maybe uh, even if you can't uh, solve the riddle, that maybe somebody else will, uh, you know, that it's there, you know, and it's captured. And I'm really excited by the amount of, because we run the Acoustic Ecology Lab, which is, um, you know, a loose collection of students who just express interest. Um, it's not a class. We don't recruit people. They don't get credit, etc. Um, and it's it kind of surprises me how many students just turn up and go, oh, I think this is really interesting. Can I come and attend the lab? And and then they feel like they want to do a project or they want to add to the projects that we're doing or, you know. What do you think it is that resonates for them? What What is it that draws them to it? If I was to make a generalization, I would say that, that the students find it really interesting that we're listening to the environment and that they really love the environment too. And they hadn't really thought about the value of listening. <laughs> um, and they hadn't really thought about it, about the sounds of the environment, either as a creative um, potential, because of course, fundamentally, I'm a composer and a performer, even though we're talking about big data analysis. Um, and secondly, uh, yeah, and secondly, they hadn't really thought about that being data and that the data is rich and we take we we you know when we go into the field every month six six weeks or so and you know we always just say to the lab we have a couple of seats empty in the car if you've got a tent and some warm clothes you're welcome to come and we'll feed you and so on and and so the students often come with us into the field um and they find that extraordinarily enriching and I, I mean, there was an undergraduate student who joined us in his first semester, in fact, and he came with us to Joshua Tree and we're sitting out there camping at night and he's like, wow, it's just like there's no sound here at all. And I said, well, yeah, except for the coyote that's calling over there and the plane that's over there and, the, <laughs> you know, and then he's like, oh, I never even heard all those things that are going on. <laughs> and so his mind just kind of exploded because he's like, oh, my God, I'm like so insensitive to the sound of the world. And, um, yeah, so we have lots of, you know, great experiences with the students who who are very passionate. And then the the virtual reality side of the project is also, you know, a number of students. And, and we have one defending today, in fact, who's just done a big study uh, using the EcoRiff system in nursing homes and looking at wellness metrics and general well-being in people who were using the system compared to people who weren't as a way of starting to examine can exposure to nature through virtual means also have a positive effect um, on people who are not otherwise able to get out into nature and that study has shown very positive benefits and we have a couple of other students that we're kind of gearing up for a bigger project, again, using the VR 
in hospitals with the nursing school here to look at um, post-surgery recovery rates. And because there's really good research that shows that if you have a window and you can see outside and you can see nature particularly, you feel more connected to the world and basically your well-being is, is, is better and you recover quicker and you're out of hospital quicker. And of course, most people can't afford to have a window, <laughs> especially in America, I guess. And um, so we are asking the question, well, is virtual exposure to nature also have a positive benefit in that situation? Um, and so I think all of these things, you know, we're constantly trying to tie together multiple aspects of the value of listening and our love for nature and try to bring that to as many people in as many ways as possible. And the students are just totally into that. Does the VR platform, I mean, you've been listening to natural soundscapes well before you integrated it with VR. Um, how is the experience different uh, seeing a picture of a place? The picture is static, but the sounds are dynamic. They're occurring. They're, they're not frozen or something. Um, so how is that? What does that experience do to the listening and to your awareness of what you're listening to? So a couple of different responses there. One is obviously when I compare, so I, I made all but one of the recordings that are in that system and, and, and which is the one in Germany I didn't make. Um, and all the, all the photographs and, and so on I, I made. So I've been present at all those locations. And so when I'm looking at the VR there, you know, I can remember the sense of being present in that place. And of course, completely different, right? Um, it's not the same thing at all, but it's extraordinary how powerful it is at transporting you somewhere. And I've had, I mean, we've had thousands and thousands of people in those systems because we are constantly being asked to come to open days for the university and so on. We have long lines of people who want to try the VR and even in those public situations where it's really busy and there's a lot of external noise and so on, I watch people put them on and then I watch the, the top part of the torso, you know, the shoulders and so on, just kind of drop and they breathe out and you can see the relaxation coming into the body because they're just like suddenly somewhere that they find peaceful and, and rewarding. So I think that's... That's easily observable, even in those environments. I really note how present people are because they're really like, for instance, when people are looking around and they're like, whoa, oh, my God, it's so beautiful. And then they look down, they're like, oh, my God, I don't have any legs. <laughs> and what that tells me is they thought they had legs. right? They kind of thought they were there, that all their sensory fusion is telling them I'm in this place. And then they're like, oh, wait, I'm not actually here. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm being tricked. So I think critical to that are a couple of things. One is that all the sound is ambisonic. And all my field recordings for a very long time, I bought the Soundfield SPS 200 when it first came out back in, I don't know, about 2000 or before that even. Um, and so I've been recording, you know, ambisonic ever since. Um, so people are getting all these spatial cues and we're using um, first order, and some scenes are are um, upmixed to third order ambisonic. So they have quite good spatial awareness from the sound, and 
and even to the fact that in one scene people report seeing a bird flying across the sky, a crow, even though the bird is not in the image. So I think the ambisonic audio gives a great, I mean, I think it's like, I don't know, most of the experience because you're getting all these, these spatial cues. Now, just as a little add-on story to that, um, when I first started building them and we had to like code everything in C and it was all very laborious, we also did some using video, which admittedly at that time was not particularly great resolution. Um, and what I found is that as soon as people saw a bird, it basically became an activity. In other words, they were like, oh, where are the other birds? And how many birds can I find? Are there other animals? And what can I see under the tree? And right, and they completely stopped listening. And so the value of the experience became, oh, I saw six birds and you know something ran away in the distance. And it was kind of like a shallow experience. And when I went back, and we tested this actually with the same location, went back to still imagery, people often don't realize that it's still imagery because the horizon line is, is distant in most of the scenes. Uh, there's one next to a river that people realize is not moving. Um, but generally people don't realize they're still images because it could just be a quiet, still day. Um, and their listening experience actually is much deeper. And my experience was that they then actually had a much deeper experience being in those locations. So yeah, over the years since the Kickstarter uh, worked um, with um, Blue Ripple Sound in the UK to help develop a bunch of ambisonic plugins. Well, I mean, they did most of the work, but we were involved in ideas and alpha testing and, and so on. And so that gave us a set of ambisonic tools for Unity and that allowed us to build these environments much more quickly and then to put them on a whole lot of different platforms. The point we're at now is actually building a backend which will allow anybody with a small VR camera and an ambisonic recorder to put their own scenes in with a little file that has GPS locations on and then they'll automatically be placed on the globe and so it'll be a kind of open expandable system. Yeah, that would be nice to see. Yeah, it's, it's actually uh, really hard well, though. <laughs> yeah, it just it requires a lot of collaboration. It requires a lot of code in the back end that's actually not that simple. <laughs> right, right. And, and now is it, for anybody that has a VR system, is it um, immediately available or is it uh, they have to find you or uh, how, how do they experience it? It's not available um, as much as I'd like it to be available. And the principal reason for that is that all of the locations in the national parks, which is the majority of them, um, would have to be licensed from the parks before we could release them. And of course, that's perfectly reasonable, but I just don't have the time to to do that work. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I would actually, we looked at releasing the original version about three years ago, I guess. Um, I mean, I need a student who decides they want to do law and they want to look at licensing agreements and and they decide that they're up for putting all those licensing agreements together. Yeah, it'd have to almost be a collaboration with those parks, I guess. Yes, yeah, so the parks um, require us to do all of that that legwork. Um, so that's that's the kind of sticking point at, at the moment is just having people power and interest to to do that kind of work. But yes, and then we we would love to distribute it um, 
because I do, I do honestly think there's a huge, I mean, we've spent a lot of time, I think, kind of perfecting, there are really subtle things that experience has told me about horizon lines and about how intimate a scene can be, um, how the perception of space, I mean, these things are not just present if you just go and make a recording and put things together. You know, we made a lot of things that didn't feel right and and it took a while to work out what what works really well and so these large these more distant horizon lines work really well um you know the scale the scale of space has to be right um yeah so and then we've you know increasingly just passionate about the possibilities in healthcare and all kinds of things and of course if if we have to build a version for your device every time somebody wants to use it, which, as you know, is what we have to do right now, um, then, you know, we can't get it out to many people. <laughs> yeah, 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 that's true. Yeah, so it's not, it's, it's not that standardized yet. Actually, the technology is standardized, so it's, it's not hard to build a version you know, that could go up on the Oculus site or the Apple store or what, Google store or whatever. Um, and certainly with like the Vive headset, there's a few other parameters that are involved. So, um, and that's, we've only done that once before. So um, for your exhibition that I just had to go back to the student who'd done that. So, and he's no longer at the university, um, just so that we could get the right bits together to make that work. Yeah. What about doing these recordings in... Uh places outside of the park but that are similar places uh, that perhaps some of your citizen collaborators uh, would know of. Yeah, sure. And that would be serve the same purposes in terms of, um, you know, healthcare and so on. I guess the resources that I've had available to put in have been around raising awareness, particularly around these, um, you know, national parks and, and places that are kind of sanctioned as as protected places um and that's been really driven you know by what i often feel is a lack of empathy for the value of these places in the cities and people who are making decisions um not really being able to understand why we think these are so important and so we've seen that you know, in the last two years, you know, the, the Trump regime has cut back Bears Ears National Monument and, and others very, very substantially, um, you know, because they think there's things to mine under there or whatever. <clears throat> and, and, the, and nowhere in that equation is the value of those environments or the species that they're, you know, important habitats for or the indigenous cultural knowledge that's there or any of these other metrics and so my part of my thinking has been not just around making the vr or so on but actually what the vr is as a tool to bring these things into the cities into schools into nursing homes into the offices of decision makers you know and to say hey this is fun isn't it why don't you look at these national parks wow they're really cool aren't they that's incredibly valuable to have that there, isn't it? <laughs> you know, maybe you could think about that. Yeah. <laughs>
That was Garth Payne from the Listen to the Power of N project at Arizona State University. To learn more about their activities, you can uh, visit ecolisten.org. And to listen and learn more about Garth Payne's compositions and soundscape research, go to activatedspace.com. The recordings you heard uh, through today's edition of Making Waves were recorded by Garth Payne, and uh, they were made uh, at the Organ Pipe Cactus National Monument, the uh, Coconino National Park, the Barker Dam at Joshua Tree National Park, and uh, the geese that you heard at the end were recorded at Beaver Creek Biosphere Reserve in Arizona. We're very grateful to Garth Payne for sharing these recordings and offering his perspectives on ecology and the soundscapes of the Southwest. Making Waves is produced by New Adventures in Sound Art in South River, Ontario, Canada. I've been your host, Darren Copeland. Thank you for listening.